Welcome to the Cyber Rants Podcast, where we're all about sharing the forbidden secrets and slightly embellished truths about corporate cybersecurity programs. We're ranting, we're raving, and we're telling you the stuff that nobody talks about on their fancy website and trade show giveaways, all to protect you from cyber criminals. And now, here's your hosts, Mike Rotondo. Zach Fuller and Lauro Chavez. Hello and welcome to the Cyber Rants podcast. It is a glorious day and we have a glorious topic for you on incident response. And my number one goal with this topic is not to give Lauro any flashbacks. Uh, so I apologize in advance, Lauro. I know this can be a difficult thing to talk about, um, but uh, dealing with those, those long nights. Um, but uh, that said, why don't we before we go into the nightmares, why don't we talk about the news? Mike, you want to kick us off? We've got some news tailored towards instant incidents, so it'll dovetail into our incident response conversation today. 740 ransomware victims named on data leak sites in Q2 2021 report. More than 700 organizations were attacked with ransomware and had their data posted to leak data leak sites in Q2 of 2021 according to new research from Digital Shadows. Out of the almost 2,600 victims listed on ransomware data leak sites, 740 of them were named in Q2, 2021, representing a 47% increase compared to Q1. Of that, more than 350 of the organizations were based in the U.S. I think that's a small number. I, I think that we can guess they probably got 80% of the, the accuracy for the ones that were reported to that site. So. Well, yeah, I mean, that's just those reported to the site. There's those that aren't reported to the sites. Those are just pay. It's, it's, it's going up. Seven or eight zero days, the failed race to fix Kaseya VSA with Victor Gevers. Uh, Victor Gevers is a Dutch uh, security researcher. So anyway, this is on off, off of malware bytes. Kaseya VSA included at least seven or eight privately known zero-day vulnerabilities before it suffered a widespread ransomware attack that impacted hundreds of businesses and security. Gevers revealed that Kaseya VSA vulnerabilities represent just one data point in a far larger and more worrying trend. The internet-facing remote administration tools are rife with flaws. And that as organizations increasingly rely on such tools for working from home environments, cyber criminals will increasingly discover, target, and exploit those flaws. Um, that's something I think we've been talking about for a while, we, you know, with the MSP issues and, and those sort of things that we need to be concerned about. It's definitely covered in the book. So, And in case you were safe with Linux, there is a new vulnerability called Sequoia, a local privilege escalation vulnerability in Linux's file system layer. Uh, successful exploitation of this vulnerability allows any unprivileged user to gain root privileges on the vulnerable host. Quality security researchers have been able to independently verify the vulnerability, develop an exploit, and obtain full root privileges on default installations of Ubuntu 2.20.04, 20.10, 21.04, Debian 11, and Fedora 34. So Oracle isn't safe either. Oracle warns of critical remotely exploitable web logic server flaws. Uh, Oracle on Tuesday released its quarterly critical patch update for 2021 with 342 fixes, including some that will allow a remote attacker to take control of an affected system. And lastly, just three additional headlines. Atlassian asked customers to patch critical JIRA vulnerability. Thousands of Humana customers have their medical data leaked online by threat actors. And finally, our buddies at Microsoft share a workaround for Windows 10 zero day called Serious Sam. So those are all things that would be considered incidents when they happen. And we'll talk about how to deal with those later. Lauro? Yeah, no, that was all good stuff. A lot of alliteration in the news this week, it seemed like. Gosh. All right. Well, for exploitation this week, if you happen to be a company that is hanging out with that 50-year-old bachelor 
that still dresses like a 20 year old. Yeah, I'm talking about WordPress. Well, let me tell you, they're still dating that <clears throat> prostitute that does heroin and crack cocaine and all that because we've got a lot of plugins this week for uh, exploitation. So for WordPress, if you're using the simple post, there's a stored cross-site scripting for that. If you're using the fixture title plugin, there's a stored cross-site scripting for that. If you're using the Mimetic Books uh, plugin, there's a default publisher ID field that's also a stored cross-site scripting. <laughs> and if you've got LearnPress or uh, 326 or 327, um, you've got a privilege escalation on 326. And on 327, you've got a SQL injection from an authenticated perspective. And if you're using the um, plugin popular post, you've got a remote code execution for that. And I'm sorry, not finally, but finally, um, if, if you've got current book, uh, one of the, uh, the book sharing uh, plugins, there is a author field stored cross-site scripting for that. So you are living in the danger zone if you're dealing with WordPress today. So watch out for that stuff and make sure you got your plugins updated. And that's all for exploitation. The WordPress is Zach, the Arby's of technology. Pretty much. <laughs> we got the meats. We got the meats. We, we need to do something and uh, welcome any ideas from the listeners, but we need to do something if we get and go for more than three weeks without any significant exploits from WordPress and Microsoft. So if we could go for three weeks and nothing significant, we should throw a party, we should do something. That It'll never happen. You got to lower your expectations. You got to make it like three days. I know, but I kind of like one of those kind of a game, you know, of some of sorts, you know, like in a manufacturing plant when they have, it's been 15 days since any incidents, whatever. And then they, they get to keep adding. And if they hit a hundred days, you know, oh, I get it. Bonus, I get it. I'm just saying you got to make the game winnable. I mean, at least somewhat achievable. I think three weeks is there's no way <laughs> I don't, yeah. I wouldn't give them seven days. Um, so. <laughs> And it doesn't have to be no exploits at all. Just no, nothing serious, you know, just minor trivial things. Um, I, I'd be, even be okay with that. Right. Just, just nothing serious, but yeah, you're probably, all right, right. I'm in probably a lost I'm in. cause. <laughs> lost no, I'm cause. In. It, it might be a lost cause. It's like one of those games that you just never get to win throwing the controller at the screen. Well, we'll see. We'll see. And sad to hear about Oracle this time, you know, but that's, Hey, it's something different. So, well, I threw that in there. Cause you know, why not? We haven't talked about Tassian either for a while and Oracle's got their share of messes as well. Well, they're all, I think that's, that's important because they're all with all of this stuff happening. They're all in the middle of incident response pretty much. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, that was a whole idea. And then that 740 people in the mall on the uh, ransomware, you know, that's all incidents. And uh, at what point does incident response no longer become incident response, but just a way of life? Operations. <laughs> yeah. Just, yep. Uh, wake up today, deal with the breach, move on. Yeah. You, business as usual. I imagine that WordPress has like an incident operations department. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, it's like, that's all they do. I don't know how they handle that stuff. I mean, because it's being all open source. Um, I wonder who. Yeah, I guess it's the, the community, but there, there's got to be somebody there dealing with this stuff, I would hope. But I know. love the fact that Microsoft positions themselves as a security vendor and, you know, has all this influence with the government on security, yet you can't go a day without a Microsoft issue. Yeah, I'm not letting the barber with a bad haircut touch my hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well said. <laughs> yeah. Want even more Cyber Rants? Be sure to subscribe to the Cyber Rants podcast. Get your copy of our best-selling book, Cyber Rants, on Amazon today. This podcast is brought to you by Silent Sector, the firm dedicated to building world-class cybersecurity programs for mid-market and emerging companies across the U.S. Silent Sector also provides industry-leading penetration tests and cyber risk assessments. Visit SilentSector.com and contact us today. Well, why don't we talk about incident response and and uh, hopefully share some knowledge that helps people. And, and uh, the goal behind all this, of course, is that you don't have to ever deal with it, right? So that's that's the the proactive side. That's what we spend a lot of time talking about, building an effective cybersecurity program and all that. But even with all that, there will be incidents, right? I mean, that certain things can happen. It doesn't have to be a breach. It can just be something is going on with your technologies that you need to investigate, right? So what do we talk about first? I was going to ask, you know, why do you need an incident response plan for those people that are, um, fairly new to this and are, are, you know, thinking about building this stuff for the first time. But um, rather than why, because I think that's blatantly clear in today's environment, um, do you have any stories you guys are willing to share? Not to put you on the spot, no, no pressure, but any stories about any organizations without naming names uh, that have had a major incident that did not have an incident response plan and wish, wish they did afterward? Anything you're willing to share? Oh, dirty laundry. Okay. You want to pull out, do you want the dirty sock or would you rather have like a dirty pair of drawers? I mean, a uh, dirty not, shirt. No details, you know, no detail. I don't even need to know well, what of course, it is. Just, we can't, just a high level. Just, I just know it's dirty, right? That's all I, that, that's sufficient. Okay. Well, it's, it's dirty. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, or, or organization they're, they're, they're in a, in a, in a very specific part of the, I guess the job families here and business families here in, in the United States. So anyways, got a lot of data and um, they had, they'd put in some pretty cool security technologies, uh, but they hadn't turned them on, which I, I think is, is interesting. And then they, they'd also, um, you know, kind of, kind of leveraged windows defender in its base form right like old school windows defender like the windows defender that like came on windows 7 like that windows defender and they've got that kind of as a you know as a their their daily you know anti malware and so when they when they got hit they got they had you know absolved the emetet variant and so when that happened to them um it you know no documentation there they were like a small i you know they had a good it team right maybe they made 10 or 12 people solid solid individuals but no maturity around cybersecurity program or doing you know doing these incident response or trying to understand this continuity um plan of actions any of that none of it done and so um you know i mean it, it you know it, it what so what do they do that they have to call for help right and um they had to learn the hard way the the benefits of you know having these things in place and then also practicing with your technologies that you purchase. You know, I think that happens a lot is that um, the business doesn't trust some of the technologies that go in, you know, and, um, and it's a, I don't want to, I don't want to contribute to the, to the vaccine situation that's happening, but you know, these, there, there's some really cool technologies that, that you can install that can, can use artificial intelligence decision-making to help you and to, to alleviate attacks that are, that are happening. But I think what, what happens is a lot of organizations are real reluctant to turn those devices on. 
and and that's what'll happen, right? And so in this case, no incident response, no planning, led to a, a mass takeover with a ransomware variant that that ended up costing the organization um, lots of money. They didn't end up having to pay a ransom um, because of some clever individuals. But um, I think that you know all of the all of the other stuff and the cyber insurance and all of the time it took to bring everything back because they had to come back from square one. High dollar attorneys. Very high dollar, high dollar attorneys. attorneys. So are you saying if you have a, if you're paying for a security platform for say six months or a year that you should actually turn it on? And yeah, probably. Can, okay. You probably should. That's probably good advice. Make, makes decent sense, I'd say. So. Yeah, but more so than that, I think that, you know, had they, um, you know, they had they practiced some of this stuff or kind of understood what to do when things happen, it would have put them in a better place, right? I mean, that mm-hmm. was a, you know, most of the time it's either, there's there's two things, right? And I think this attributes back to pretty much anything in life, the people who practice things, you know, and you can call them, um, we'll go we'll go for like the preppers and the bug out, right? That whole uh, genre of individuals, right? They, they go and practice things or maybe they have, I watched this on Netflix, right? And so this guy had a boat and like he took it down the river and he had this like little, like this little hut way out in the middle of the woods. And he had like this device where he would blow the tree and the tree would fall in the river so he could stop people from chasing him. And they would practice this like, you know, a couple times a year. Okay. That, that same thing, what it does. And, you know, for, for, for the military people, you understand that there's a repetition of practice builds this sort of um, kind of a comfortability under a high stress time. Um, and it, it just, you know, you just like paramedics or everybody else, they train, right? And, that, and that's something that you, you sort of inherit from seeing that or playing these like games out over and over again, right? And then when finally the real time happens, it's sort of a second nature to react now. You know what to do. You don't have to think about, right? In this particular case, how long? So tell us how long they were, this, the organization was down. Basically, people couldn't work. It basically operations stopped um, as it stood, as it happened. And then how how much quicker could have, they have responded and been back online had they had an appropriate plan in place? Sure. Um, so I, I, th- I want to say it happened on a, um, I want to say it happened on like a Thursday. Uh, they, they didn't really figure out what was going on until Friday. And by Saturday, they were, in a panic mode, basically asking for help at that point. And so when I want to say it was, I think it was a Saturday afternoon that I got involved. Um, it was, I mean, so here's the thing is that they're, you know, the, for the, for the techie guys out there, this is an organization that relies on Active Directory. Okay. So as you've got your domain controllers, you know, that they kind of are a very fundamental piece in an Active Directory core structure. So they had, you know, 14 or 15 of them, all of them are compromised with ransomware. Okay. So they're down. Um, and it's and so this week, so we're rolling into you know Sunday and Mondays, you know, still just kind of a chaotic couple of days to try to trying to contain, right? And we'll talk about those processes probably here in a minute, right? The, the containment part of mm-hmm. incident response, but we're trying to contain this from happening, right? Because it's you know it's ransomware, so it's replicating itself over and over again um, to different systems, um, and so we're we're trying to um, you know basically just contain this, and at the same time trying to, to rebuild because the, the first thing that that happened was all the for whatever reason, domain, it was very structured, but the domain controllers were the, pretty much the first thing that happened in the attack. Because <laughs> after the ransomware got a domain admin account, that was the first thing it went for, right? It, that was the first thing that they, they did. They deployed 
to the domain controllers. So the domain controllers are completely wiped out, uh, as well as other servers. Okay, so rolling into Monday, team realizes this is a pay week. So they, they have, I don't know, a couple hundred, maybe two or 300 employees and contractors that are expected to get paid this week. So that's not going to happen. They're going to have to write paper checks, right? It's not ACH and all that stuff's not going to go down this week. So they, they've got a way, at least they've got a mitigating factor, right? They can bring people in, but they, they've got a whole huge work remote force now, right? So now we've got five or six or 700 um, laptops and maybe they were bigger than that. Maybe there were more, maybe there's more like 800 or so people, but they have all these laptops now that are in various places that are all on the Active Directory VPN that are now have the, the ransomware as well. So now there's this mass call that goes out for employees to start bringing their their workstations in to get re-imaged and reissued, um, so that they could you know continue to do some of their consulting gigs. So that that pretty much wiped out the first like from that Monday to the next like Tuesday or Wednesday. And so it was probably I want to say that it was about we were we were able to bring back Active Directory controllers and core business systems probably within six to seven days. And then I want to say that. Um, from once we got them to a stable point, I want to say they still had about a month and a half to two months before they were back to normal operations. Wow. Zach, so I want to say it was about, it might've taken them two and a half months total to mm -hmm. maybe three months to, to recover. I wouldn't even say hundred percent. I'd say that that's probably 80% recovery. Um, and then they're still trying to figure out what they don't know. And had um, so, they had a, a proper plan in place with, with backups tested and everything else, what do you think that would have shortened the time to? probably a day or two, um, uh -huh. maybe less, because what, what was happening here is that they were in a virtualized environment. I know people are thinking, well, why didn't they back up? They didn't really have a backup strategy. They were taking snapshots. Okay, so they, they, they had some snapshots, but it wasn't like core data. It was like operating system-based snapshots, right, for, 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 for building systems and, you know, for in, in dev and test. So some of the things, you know, like were, were, they had the capabilities to do it. But to answer your question specifically, had they been, you know, thought this process out and said, okay, well, what happens if the active directory controllers go down? How do we rebuild? They would have worked themselves through this kind of problem, reaction, solution scenario where they find, you know, what, what's happening? What, what are we going to do about it? And then how do we resolve back to normal? And then would have realized that the snapshot methodology that we're using wasn't sufficient enough to bring back core computing systems in a short amount of time. Um, so they would have, you know, seen that in the demonstration of this exercise and been like, okay, well, that's not going to work. We need to, we need to think of something else, right? Well, maybe if we take system state data and then, you know, move it offline to this or, right, or you know, or something else or increase the frequency of the snapshots and then provide an offline backup. So there's, you know, there, there were things that they could have maybe done through exercise and thinking through the process of incident response and business continuity that would have helped them recover because the proper technologies like in a Docker or something like that would have helped them recover in hours. They could have been back up. Now that's not, I'm not talking about the laptops, that, that part of the collateral damage is what it is, right? The physical assets you have to repair, that's just going to be the time it takes for people to bring their things in, right? Unless you've got some form of advanced malware that can, you know, do some really incredible sandboxing and remote, you know, removal. Um, otherwise you're going to be bringing those machines in probably. And you may still want to do it even if, you know, your, your malware says it's contained. Um, but you need to take a manual step to remove the rest of the, you know, the malware. So you're going to want to bring those physical assets in anyway. But for core business operations, right, your servers, your databases, your, you know, core core systems for the business, that stuff should be 99% uptime. Like if things hit it, you should be able to tear down and rebuild within hours. 
And so that running those exercises and having that documentation, I think would have, would have greatly, greatly increased their recovery time. Critical, critical. Well, let's talk about, I mean, that perfect example. Um, I think it's crystal clear why an incident response um, plan is, is needed and, and not just a plan on paper, but tested and such. So let's talk about the development of an incident response plan from the point of view of an organization that's never put one in place, let's just say, start from the ground up. We need to build an incident response plan. What do we do? What's the process? How should we be thinking about that? Um, And Mike, I know you love to write this type of stuff up and plan these types of things. Any thoughts? Well, I mean, you have to start with identifying your key resources and then you need to identify your key components that may be affected. And and, then you're going to have to you know, do the research to determine what kind of incidents may happen. Um, the, one of the flaws that I see a lot of these incident response plans is they get so into the weeds on some of this stuff that they take everything to account and turn a document that should be 12 or 15 pages into something that's 60 pages long and cumbersome and basically unuse, unusable because they've, you know, they've put everything into there instead of trusting into the knowledge of some of their people. So, I mean, yeah, identify your people, develop your racy properly understand who needs to be involved and who doesn't and decide, you know, what instances need the most attention. Um, and when we talk about incident, let's, let's just be clear. We're not talking about a single point of ransomware. Someone opens a phishing email and the, you know, the antivirus software, you know, carbon black or whatever that's on there happens to grab it and it's done. That is an incident, but that's, we're talking about major incidents here. We're not talking about minor incidents, right? So anything that can be handled by your tier one, at your help desk is, is not really truly an incident. So, I mean, that's your plan. You write it out, you decide who's, who's, who needs to be involved, and then you put together certain scenarios. You put together a workflow, decide who has to be engaged from a non-technical perspective uh, for anything major that occurs. Start from there. So you just have to think it through. And then the other, the other key piece is testing it. Make sure it works. Make sure people uh, know what they're doing. The worst tabletop exercises we have for IR is when one person is the only one that speaks, and it's the director. And then, you know, we go through the tabletop exercise. We have these technical people here. And the only one talks is the director because he's the only he's the only one's ever, ever ever seen the IR document. Yeah, not a good position to be in. How how would you guys suggest um, setting up? So you have your incident response plan in place documented. Um, you have your workflows. You have severity level classifications, your points of contact, right? Um, how would you recommend disseminating it, getting everybody that needs to be involved on board and making sure that they understand what it is they're supposed to do. Tabletop exercises, I think, is what what we see the most, um, has the most value. And I think it, it it's the most fun part of it, I think. But, uh, you know, to kind of add on to what Mike said, you, you, you know, when you're developing this documentation, you know, get your you know, start thinking through like, you know, okay, so great example, right? Just to, you, you're dependent on, on um, Office 365. Okay, what, what happens if, if for whatever reason, Office 365 gets some DNS attack in the future, right? And it's down. What, what is your backup method of communication with your employees, right? That sort of thing, right? How are employees supposed to communicate with each other? Little simple activities like that, right? Um, are, are part of this, right? Not just, you know, someone clicks on a link and we get ransomware or, you know, um, Amazon East goes down, right? I mean, if something like that happens, there's probably bigger issues. But the tabletop exercises, I think, are how everybody can really get involved 
And, you know, not only are they required for compliance, we don't need to talk about that, right? This is just like good practice, right? If you, if you're, if you're out there and you're a gun guy, you like to go to the range. If you're out there and you're golf, you know, you like to go to the, you like to go to the range. <laughs> you know, if you, if you, whatever sport you play, you like to go and you hone your skill, right? You at least keep up with your skill. And that's what incident response is to skill that everybody needs to, to practice at. And those tabletop exercises, you get all of your people that are going to be in that emergency response team, right? Mike, to so get all your critical people together. If you've got two network guys and they're the ones that manage everything, they both probably need to be on the incident response team. One of them might be sick. One of them might, you know, go away. Um, and so you, you want to have both of those, but if you've got a larger team, maybe only, if, you know, you need maybe two out of 10, right. To be on that, that emergency response team, but pull from your critical business areas, get everybody in a room and, um, come up with a, with a, with a scenario. Um, it's, it's real easy. You know, I, you can do it on a whiteboard. You can do it. We do it in a spreadsheet, you know, with zoom calls and we say, okay, the time is 1101 AM and we just got notified from a client that our website is sending out um, malware, is serving out malware, the business website, serving out malware. What do we do? Ready, go. And then start trying to induce that critical thinking in your people. And that's it's, it starts right there, I think, to get everybody involved. Yeah, no, I mean, that's a very good point. And you always want to earn a secondary for every every type of contingency. So even, even from the accounting department, you want a primary and a secondary. And from HR, you want a primary and a secondary. It also all ties into the BIA, the business impact analysis as well. That'll help you identify what applications are the most critical um, and that would really warrant function and actually note in your incident response document. So one of the things that you do need to make sure that you update your documents regularly, because if you're referring to your secondary communication as the on the on-call pager, I don't know anybody that has pagers anymore. So hit me up one, four, three. Yeah. When you, when you have to pull out the scrolls and unroll them, yeah. to identify the horseman that will take the message. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, that's, that's uh, definitely a problem. I think um, people are, are relying on, still relying on documentation and incident response plans that have been built by people that left the company five years ago, you know, and it hasn't, hasn't been pulled out and dusted off since then. So well, look well, at these the, things every year, at least. Yeah. The living document idealism, we need to start talking about that because there there's two types of documents. There's a dead document right? That's, that's something that's like a, a, a law or court or something, you know, a, a memo. And then there's a living document, which is falls under all of these standards, policies, incident response included, right? These documents need to be updated regularly. They need to be looked at regularly. I mean, and, and Mike and I know that in some organizations, there's a team of people that manage the documents. Yeah. And, and you know, honestly, from a SOC 2 perspective, from a PCI perspective, uh, from any compliance perspective, those documents need to be updated a minimum every year and after every major change. And that, that's really what needs to happen. Yeah, because a good auditor is going to look at something that you've got running on the infrastructure and they're going to look at the document and cross-reference to you know validate that the evidence you know is substantiated that you're doing the right things, both programmatically and technologically. And we're going to see a difference, right? Somebody's going to see a difference and be like, well, you're doing this, but how come the document doesn't say this? Or vice versa, right? The document says you're doing this, but I we haven't located a technology that provides this function. Yeah, and so, just like in your incident response document, dealing with your 2008 servers probably isn't all that important in the year 2021. Now, before we wrap up too, I want to share something that I think um, a lot of people miss or don't understand going into this from the beginning. Um, if you have an incident and you're just randomly calling a 
incident response company Googling for people to help you, um, you're all, you're already, it's already failed, right? Cause you haven't set yourself up properly. So of course there's your, your planning and such, but you need to have, you need to have cyber insurance. I mean, I think that's pretty obvious in, in this day and age and you, you need to go through your cyber insurance firm in advance to understand their approved vendors for incident response, talk with those vendors, pick one or two, have the their contact information, that documentation, all that. Make sure these are companies that specialize in incident response that have, you know, 24-7 people on the line ready to go when something happens and approved through your insurance provider. Otherwise, your insurance provider, if you just go out randomly, chances are most of them are going to pay probably half or less of the actual cost um, versus if it's a pre-approved vendor, they're going to pay a lot more. So have your, go through your cyber insurance uh, provider to, to get yourself prepared for this. And also you need to have an attorney. Um, you need to have an attorney involved when an incident occurs and investigation is underway by a third party. Um, the attorney is there to protect you. So have an attorney identified again, one that either specializes or does an a tremendous amount of work in incident response and understands it. And the reason for that is, and, and the, the Capital One breach was a, a clear case of this. And, and I'm not an attorney by any means, never even played one on TV, but um, to paraphrase what happened, essentially Mandiant was a cybersecurity service provider for uh, Capital One on an ongoing basis. Well, they were also brought in um, to do the incident response and the breach. And basically the court deemed that um, because they had been providing ongoing services, uh, that this work that was done was really between Capital One and Mandiant and was um, basically subpoenaed, right? So the opposing counsel could get access to all the details of the breach investigation that was performed by Mandiant. Um, so when you go about this, you don't you don't want to have your evidence. You don't want to have your breach investigation information handed over to opposing counsel in the event of a lawsuit, because then they could say, oh, they could point at anything they want, really, and say, oh, this is negligence. This is negligence. This is negligence. You know, and really try to use that against you. So have an attorney. The attorney engages the. Um, it engages the incident response firm. You don't engage the incident response firm. The attorney does, right? Because that way you maintain client attorney privilege um, for those findings, right? So again, this is not not legal advice, but this is this is what we know through um, experience and and having dealt with these types of things in the past. Um, you need to have those parties involved. Um, a pre-selected um, couple of incident response firms. Um, a good attorney or two and, and your cyber insurance provider all together um, and have that documented, ready to go. So um, hope that helps just because, uh, you know, again, so many people reach out at random when an incident occurs and they need help, uh, but they're, they're already going about it the wrong way and could get themselves in a lot of trouble down the road. So not to make it too serious of a conversation or anything, but that's, I think that's important for people to know. Well, totally. Right. Yeah. I mean, especially if they're going to, if, if they're going to try to get damages, you know, refunded through insurance claim. Right. So yep. you've got to, you've got to play by the insurance rules. So it's good Absolutely. to know that. Absolutely. One of the things yeah. that you need to be mindful of as well is that some of these contracts for insurance do require forensic 
work and some don't. Mm -hmm. And you need to be sure that you know which one you have before you can bring a laptop in that's been exposed and has ransomware on it or malware on it and you wipe it and you've just voided your cybersecurity policy. Because they Excellent can't. Excellent point. Yeah, Excellent chain point. of evidence. Yeah, you've got to maintain that. So yeah, they're going to require. So yeah, but again, incident response plan, practice and, you know, it, it you know, one of those first steps should be, do we have cyber insurance? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, we can contact them. Yeah, and sorry, I didn't mention this earlier, but the simplest thing to do is, and I think you brought this up, Laura, is just get in a room, you know, like we do with a lot of things and just interview key resources and say, all right, what do you do here? What do you do here? And then you develop your document from there. The Bobs? Yeah. Is that what you're referencing? Yep. The Bobs. So what do you do here? <laughs> what would you say you do here, Bob? Excellent there, talk. There. Any, yeah. any final smart remarks or questions, ideas, thoughts for the audience, requests? Before we jump off? No, I, I think, I don't know. I hope this was a good talk. I hope you enjoyed it. You know, again, I think if, if you know, you're, you're, you're just starting in this, like Mike said, get in a room, start going through all of your critical technologies, critical services, and um, the people that, the critical people that manage those critical services, and then go through some scenarios and what happens when you check one off and, and how did everybody react? And you can always engage an outside company to interrogate your people. I mean, you can always you know, buy eight, 10, 12 hours of a consulting practice for someone to help you develop it. If you don't want to develop it internally, let them conduct the interviews. Yeah. Mike and I'll come in and do the inquisitions. That's fine. But you still <laughs> have to bring the bagels and, and donuts and coffee. Absolutely. We, we, we only work when there's bagels and donuts and coffee. That's, that's part of it. Part of the requirement. So yeah, have a uh, have a good uh, pizza, a local you know pizza shop on your incident response plan too, because your people are going to get hungry. So that's my advice. Yeah, it's yeah. going to be a long yeah, night. It's going to be a long couple week nights. Like <laughs> you need to be, you need to have you have breakfast, lunch, and dinner planned for your teams because you may be five days, twenty four hours a day. Yeah, I remember the dot com era when we were still trying to bust stuff out to market, and we'd work. 18, 24 hours a day straight, multiple days in a row. And the executives thought it was it was okay as long as they provided us pizza, you know, that that was, you know, it would satisfy all our needs to do that mm -hmm. for a month straight. And it's like, no, dude, we're not <laughs> <laughs> like no, I need Red Bull too. Yeah. And that's why scripting took off to yeah. automate the tasks. Thank goodness. Well, thank you everyone for listening and joining us. If you bought a copy of the book on Amazon, please give it a rating. Let us know what you think and let us know what you think of the podcast. Reach out anytime, uh, cyberrantspodcast.com. There's a web form there. You can do different requests or reach out on LinkedIn. Let us know what's on your mind, what we can talk about and what types of information you'd like us to share or stories or just ranting. So thank you again and have a wonderful day. Pick up your copy of the Cyber Ants book on Amazon today. And if you're looking to take your cybersecurity program to the next level, visit us online at www.silentsector.com. Join us next time for another edition of the Cyber Ants podcast.